What I want to do is just make just a couple of very preliminary remarks and then start the program. Um, first of all, what I want to uh, bring your attention to is that we are trying to listen to you in terms of the things that you think are most important. So a while back we conducted a needs assessment and the number one request for a conference was dementia and the number two was palliative medicine. So what we decided to do was think about how could we put those two together because the interface between dementia and palliative medicine is really a very rapidly breaking and really important topic. So this, uh, this conference is literally a product of your ideas, or kind of thinking about uh, those two priorities and our wish to think about the interface between those two areas, which you'll be hearing about today. Secondly, um, we've really been thinking about how to help make these conferences more engaging um, in every way and also to, to make them uh, more thought-provoking. And so what you'll see today is, is several attempts to do that, which is we're going to try to, as much as we can, be case-based in our presentations, to think with you about specific cases and to have you uh, brainstorm in your own mind uh, along with the speaker about, about the implications of, of specific uh, individuals or ideas of individuals. And secondly, another way to do that that we've been working on and would love to hear your thoughts about and your evaluations is the use of, of, uh, of simulated or standardized patients as actors or actresses that take on the roles of people with various types of disorders. And we think that also is another way to really bring to life some of these topics that are by themselves interesting, but, but really we're all about, all of us here, actually doing things with people, not with ideas. And so we hope that those, um, those approaches will be uh, ones that will be successful to you and, and they're interested in your thoughts. Lastly, what I want to do is, is uh, thank uh, people who put an enormous amount of work into this conference. Uh, there's our, our really uh, able staff who's out in the front hall here welcoming you and putting together packages and helping put things together the, in terms of the content. Chris Parker, uh, Cindy Kendall, uh, Bernie Seifert, and Nicole Sorensen. And then there's the, uh, the hard work of the, uh, of the committee that put together this uh, program, uh, which included uh, Ellen uh, Flaherty, Deborah Hastings, Justin Montgomery, Sharona Sachs from Palliative Medicine, uh, and uh, Bernie uh, Seifert, as, as uh, well as uh, Amelia Cullinan. And then finally, I want to thank Laura Wise, who's our really terrific, able uh, director of the uh, uh, geriatric Education Center programming for putting together and taking leadership in terms of this, uh, this conference. Lastly, I just want to put in a plug for a November 13th uh, conference we're going to be doing on alcohol, uh, drug, and medication misuse in older adults, another really important, uh, and as you might imagine, with the current uh, baby boomer generation maturing, becoming a bigger and bigger problem and concern. Uh, and so we'd really like to see you there, and you can set that aside November 13th if you're interested as another uh, opportunity to learn more about these breaking issues. So uh, with, uh, with that, I want to uh, just again finally recognize the faculty. Uh, you can see them in your program. You'll hear introductions for each of those individuals. Uh, but um, uh, it really has been a pleasure to think with these individuals and to hear about their ideas to put together this outstanding program today that you'll be seeing. So with that, uh, I can introduce Bob Santulli. I hope his bio is there as if I need it. Um, so I'm just going to make a couple of comments since we don't have his bio here, but I can, I can figure it out. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Santulli uh, is a 
really outstanding geriatric psychiatrist who's been running our dementia and memory disorders program at Dartmouth for years. He's also the director of the uh, Division of uh, Geriatric Psychiatry at Dartmouth. Uh, you probably recognize his name from all the terrific work that he does in caregiver support um, and uh, memory cafes and, and uh, Alzheimer's uh, support groups, as well as uh, work that he's done putting together guides and books on, on caregiving for Alzheimer's. So it's really a, a pleasure uh, to uh, welcome first a good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Bob Santulli. Thank you. Good morning. Let's back up a little bit. Um, I'm very glad to be here and be able to speak to you all about this topic, dementia care and palliative medicine. And as Steve indicated, these are really two very important topics and two topics that increasingly are coming together, I think. And so that's what we're going to try to focus on in this talk. I'm going to begin by talking about uh, a person. Mr. D. Mr. D is a 90, or was, I should say, a 92-year-old man from New Haven, Connecticut. He uh, was widowed for about 10 years. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's one of 10 siblings, none of whom had Alzheimer's disease. And uh, as the slide indicates, all of the photos you're going to see are shown with the permission of Mr. D's family. Mr. D was always a very cheerful, active, vigorous individual. After his uh, wife died, he lived independently. He worked until he was 86 as a barber, which he'd been doing since I think he was about 16. Uh, so he was pretty good at that, uh, but gave it up uh, at the young age of 86. He was uh, not only active at work, but he played golf once a week on his day off, and very, very social with a very large extended Italian family. Mr. D, however, in his later years, developed dementia. He was beginning to show growing difficulties with his instrumental activities of daily living, handling his finances, driving, uh, managing to really take care of himself independently, to the point where his family decided it was safest for him to, and he was no longer able to uh, be the superb barber that he had been. Um, his family decided that it was time for him to, to stop living alone. It took a little bit of persuasion, but ultimately he then moved up to uh, live with one of his daughters in another state. So as I mentioned, he became, uh, he developed dementia. What is dementia? Well, dementia very simply is an acquired loss of ability in thinking and in functioning sufficient to interfere with daily life. It's not just a little trouble with your memory or a little bit of difficulty doing this or that. It's sufficient to interfere with your daily life. Now that's still a somewhat subjective uh, criteria that is used, but it's kind of like you know it when you see it, but it's a little bit hard to be more specific than this in describing it. These are the most common causes of dementia. There's really many different illnesses that can produce dementia, but there's only a handful that cause it with any great frequency. Alzheimer's disease, far and away the most common. Vascular dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, 
Parkinson's dementia and frontotemporal dementia are probably the most common forms of this uh, of dementia. And then there are a great many other conditions. This is just uh, enough to fill a slide, but many others that are perhaps less common, but are certainly uh, seen as uh, causes for this condition. As I mentioned, Alzheimer's is by far and away the most common. I'd like to show this slide because it has to do, it's based on a, a pathology study. And um, the uh, diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, or indeed of most dementias, is, can be made with relative accuracy during life, but not 100% accuracy. The 100% the accurate diagnosis comes only with autopsy. So this slide represents an autopsy study that looked at people who had been diagnosed with dementia during life and looked at what kind of dementia did they actually have, the 100 cases. And the vast majority of these patients, as you can see, had either pure Alzheimer's or some form of mixed dementia, meaning vascular disease in the brain along with Alzheimer's. And if you look at those two groups together, that accounts for well over half the cases of dementia. Uh, some studies would indicate up to 75 or 80 percent. It's hard to know what the exact number is because the literature is really quite scattered on this. But every uh, report would agree that by, by far and away, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, whether it includes vascular disease of the brain, which I think most of the time it does, frankly, uh, or whether it is just pure, quote-unquote, Alzheimer's with plaques and tangles. Um, so when we think about dementia, it's always good to have in mind that there are many possible causes but if all we have is the information that somebody has dementia, statistically the chances are very high that that's Alzheimer's disease. Now, one of the things that I think is, in a way, obvious, but is important to keep in mind, particularly in this context, where we're talking about palliative care and uh, dementia, is that Alzheimer's disease, as well as most of the other dementias, for, for that matter, if not all of them, are incurable, and they are terminal. People who have Alzheimer's die with Alzheimer's. They don't ever get rid of it. They may die of Alzheimer's, they may die with Alzheimer's, but they, once they have it, they always have it. We have treatment for Alzheimer's, but the treatments are not very effective. They are modest only in slowing down the symptoms. It's been years since we've had any new drugs for Alzheimer's, 10 years to be precise. And while there's a lot of work being done to try to come up with better treatments so that one day, hopefully, we'll be able, we won't be talking about Alzheimer's as a terminal illness, just as we no longer talk about AIDS as a terminal illness, or cancer, for that matter, as a terminal illness. It, we're, we're not there yet, and we're still far from that, I think, uh, frank, quite frankly. So it's important to realize that Alzheimer's disease is a terminal illness. And what does that mean? To me, what that means is that dementia care is palliative care. It's nothing other than that. It's certainly not curative. 
Dementia care involves trying to provide the greatest quality of life for the individual and his or her family to try to maximize pleasurable experiences, to try to minimize unpleasant experiences, be they psychological, psychiatric, or physical. That, as I understand it, is what palliative care is all about, and about decision-making, which I'll talk about in a moment. So I think it's important to realize that if you take care of people who have dementia, you are already, hopefully, if you have the right mindset about it, providing palliative care. Now, I mentioned uh, people with Alzheimer's die with it, people with dementia die with it, and sometimes they die of it. If, of course, most people, not all, but most people who have uh, Alzheimer's disease or other dementias are elderly, uh, and so they have a variety of illnesses very often that one of them may, in fact, uh, cause their demise. Um, but if someone with Alzheimer's doesn't die of something else, just coincidentally, a, a, a second illness that they happen to have, they are going to die from the complications of Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's disease will lead to these complications without fail, unless somebody dies of something else in the meantime. And the most common cause of death in Alzheimer's is pneumonia. Typically, this is aspiration pneumonia, although it is not always. People with late-stage dementia are debilitated and are vulnerable to infections of all kinds. But typically, what happens is in late-stage Alzheimer's is that people lose the ability to swallow safely. They lose the ability to close the glottis over the esophagus, over the, uh, the bronchus, so that even saliva, but certainly uh, liquids or, or solids that are taken in, go down the wrong way, go into the lungs. We've all done that and you know choked on something that we're eating, but people with Alzheimer's, that becomes what happens in the latest stages of disease. Food or saliva or liquid goes into the lungs, serves as a nidus for infection, and they develop an aspiration pneumonia and often die of that, which uh, what used to be called, pneumonia used to be called the old man's best friend. And I think that uh, there's something to be said for that still, at least in this condition. <clears throat> People don't die of pneumonia. They may have a pulmonary embolism. They may just simply die of cachexia, of wasting. Uh, and as you'll see also later on in this case, uh, falls leading to hip fractures or head injuries can be the common, the, another common cause of demise for people who have late stage Alzheimer's disease. So people with Alzheimer's die either with Alzheimer's because something else takes them coincidentally, uh, or they die of Alzheimer's in this somewhat indirect, but really directly uh, 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 medical problems that are directly the result of Alzheimer's. <clears throat> in Vermont, and New Hampshire in 2010, in Vermont, 238 people died from Alzheimer's disease, 396 in New Hampshire. Uh, may not sound like large numbers, but we're 
uh, talking about actual numbers of deaths in our small states, and these are the figures from 2010. So we'll go back to now Mr. D. Sorry, that picture's not that clear here. Two years ago, he moved into a memory care unit at a local assisted living facility, and it was decided around that time that, uh, and probably it should have been done beforehand, but it was decided that his DPOA, which he'd signed years ago, along with his wife when she was living, his dual powers of attorney for health care and for finances, but it was uh, officially decided that these should be enacted at this time, along with as part of the process of his uh, entrance into this facility. I can't emphasize, I probably don't need to emphasize to this audience, but I'll, mention, I'll say it anyway, the importance of executing durable powers of attorney for all of us. My wife and I have them. Uh, we all should have them, and certainly our elderly patients should have them. If someone has Alzheimer's disease or other form of dementia and they're fairly mild, in most cases they are still quite capable of executing a durable power of attorney for healthcare or finances. All that means is that they understand what that is about and they are able to sign it willingly. They are not being coerced. They don't, it's not a matter of them not having any idea what they're signing. They can understand that in a, at a good day or at a good time of the day especially. And that very much needs to be done. When those documents are in place, and uh, people know where they are, because that's important, they need to get to the hospitals that you might get care at. When those documents are in place, unless there is really unusual circumstances or great fighting within a family about what should happen to mom or dad, there is never a need to go to guardianship, and that's an important concept to realize. Most people, if they have durable powers of attorney, do not have to go the route of guardianship, which is an enormous benefit psychologically, uh, declaring someone incompetent and by a judge going that route uh, is is psychologically very traumatic for not only the individual but for the family. It's very expensive. And it's an unnecessary step if the durable powers of attorney have been enacted. But don't wait on that. I like to think of this, uh, the time of diagnosis of dementia might be uh, thought of as a window of opportunity to do this if it hasn't already been done. But it's a closing window of opportunity because tomorrow this individual could have stroke, could have some sort of illness, could, something could happen, and if it's not tomorrow, next week, next month, things could develop to the point where that individual is no longer able to have testamentary capacity, as it's called, no longer able to uh, execute durable powers of attorney, which means they don't go into effect at that point, it just means they're signed. So they're ready to go into effect when the time, if and when the time comes. And it's very important to do that now, hoping you don't need it forever or for a very long time. But if you wait, and I've seen it too often, you can wait too long, and then you really may end up having to go for guardianship. When everybody's in agreement about things, it's just that the, the ducks haven't been gotten in a row yet. 
So what are, what are some of the common decisions that are involved that may have to be in the hands of the durable power of attorney for healthcare or finances? Here we'll talk about healthcare. Some of the, te- and there are many, many different decisions, and all, it's really better to have that in the hands of a power of attorney, a durable power of attorney, rather than simply looking back on a living will, because most people who execute, you know, complete living wills, no, no one can really anticipate all the things that may come up. No one can. Uh, you can give your general ideas about what you want, but it's impossible to really be able to specify all the specific things that you're going to need to uh, have in place a year later, 10 years later, 25 years later, when, when the time comes. So it's very important to have a durable power of attorney who can make those decisions in real time. And the durable power of attorney's job, I think as everyone knows, is not to do what he or she, the durable power of attorney, thinks is right. It's to do what that individual would have wanted had he or she been able to make that decision himself or herself. Now, hopefully the durable power of attorney that you choose is someone whose views are quite similar to yours, otherwise you probably shouldn't choose that durable power of attorney. But uh, by and large, it is important for the durable power of attorney to realize that this does not mean they can do whatever they want. Their job is, by law, to do what the individual would have wanted. So some of the decisions might be having to do with discontinuing, I say, unnecessary medications, perhaps I should say less than life-saving medications. Might have to do with whether or not the individual will go to the hospital should the need arise, or should something happen that might lead them to be hospitalized. Certainly it should involve things like do not resuscitate orders, both at-home DNR and in-hospital DNR. Along with this, no treatments to prolong life, only comfort. Making decisions about how much on the balance, on the seesaw between pain control and cognitive clarity, where, where does, should that person, where, where should you draw that balance? You know, the more aggressive the efforts are to provide pain control, Dr. Kaiser is going to talk about this a little later on, the more likely it is that the individual will lose further cognitive clarity. And the same is true with managing agitation. And so where do you draw the line? How much pain should someone have to experience in order to maintain cognitive clarity? There's not a right or wrong answer for this. I have my own opinions about it, but it's important to realize that these are decisions that need to be decided. These are opinions that need to be discussed, and hopefully Margo will have some uh, more enlightening things to say about it. So these are the decisions, but the question that I think comes up in dementia and is an interesting and difficult one is, so when does this start? Let's say Mr. Jones has just been diagnosed with early Alzheimer's disease. He's really pretty okay, but he's got early Alzheimer's disease. 
He makes his out as Gerald Powers of Eternity. When do you start all these things that I talked about, deciding that they're not going to go in the hospital, discontinuing medications, not providing any treatments to for a long life, and so forth? When do, when do these things begin? Does it start when someone is in the mild stages of dementia, in the moderate stage, late stage dementia? Again, there aren't right or wrong answers, and it's not that there's the same answer for each one of these decisions, but these are decisions that will need to be made. When does it go into play? From the time someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, they have a terminal illness. They have an incurable illness that's going to kill them if nothing else does. But when along, but we all know that people who have mild Alzheimer's can still uh, live very meaningful and enjoyable lives and will want to do so for uh, a period of time. So when do these decisions take place? Those are some of the tough questions that have to get addressed. <clears throat> Let me go back again now to uh, Mr. D. Over the time that he was in uh, assisted living, you can tell that's where he is because he's got his telltale pendant on, he, uh, he really declined. He lost his ability to communicate very meaningfully. He would say a few things, but it was very hard to understand most of what he was saying. And he began to develop more and more need for uh, assistance with his basic activities of daily living. He began to show some mild aggressiveness with care, like uh, many, so many patients do in this setting. And uh, when, care is, when, when care is attempted, uh, that's when people are most likely to become aggressive. You know, so somebody's trying to change them, trying to help them with getting dressed or whatever, and not understanding that, uh, the patient may fight, fight back at that. And he would do that as a person who would never have been that way prior to his dementia. So he had some of that, but the rest of the time he was pretty okay. He would wander aimlessly around the facility. He liked to walk. He walked very slowly, but uh, he liked to walk around and uh, uh, not really having anywhere he was going, but just, just ambling around. Otherwise, when he wasn't walking, he was sitting, and when he was sitting, he was sleeping. And again, like many people with later stage Alzheimer's, sleeping an awful lot of the day. At this point, he really had reached fast stage six, or moderately severe dementia. So what does that mean? Let me go through the fast stages fast. <laughs> um, at least starting with the, the stages that involve Alzheimer's or, or dementia. And every place that says Alzheimer's, you could substitute the word dementia. The, the scale was created for Alzheimer's disease, but it's really, uh, it applies to dementia as well. Stage four on the FAST scale is mild or early stage Alzheimer's disease. And these are individuals who are forgetful. Uh, they don't remember recent events in particular. That's the most common form of short-term memory, most common form of memory impairment, short-term memory impairment. They may have some greater difficulty performing complex tasks. Not they may, they do. Uh, such as planning dinner for guests, paying the bills, managing finances, driving, a very hot issue for people with dementia who still think they're excellent drivers but aren't. 
They are vulnerable at this stage to being exploited, and I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this over and over and over again. And this means that somebody calls you up on the phone, always at dinner time, if it's like our house, wanting to sell you something. And most of us hang up on those calls or say, no, thank you, and hang up on those calls. People with dementia say, oh, that sounds okay. That sounds good. Sure, here's my credit card number. Or I'll write you a check. And there are so many situations like that and worse that I've encountered, even in people in mild or early stage Alzheimer's, that in my view, financial durable power of attorney should probably take place at this point. What does that mean? What is When I say that financial power of attorney should take place, it should be enacted is really the right way to say it. What that means is if you have these documents in place, that at some point, a note needs to be made in the, in the patient's record or a letter written, depending on, on what the exact circumstances are, from physicians saying that in my judgment, Mr. So-and-so is uh, no longer able to make proper financial decisions for himself due to his dementia, and it is my belief that at this point in time, the durable power of attorney for finances needs to be enacted, Some, something to that effect. That puts this uh, previously dormant document into play. And now, the durable power of attorney for finances is able to make those decisions. Why? Because they want to steal all Mr. D's money? No, but because they want to protect the individual from uh, being exploited. And there are various ways to do this, and in early stage dementia, most patients are not really happy about giving this up, but perhaps sharing that responsibility with a durable power attorney makes sense because this is such a common phenomenon. So going through the fast stages again, uh, stage five, moderate or mid-stage Alzheimer's. By this point, uh, gaps in memory and thinking are quite noticeable, and individuals are really beginning to need help with day-to-day -day activities. These are people who need someone around pretty much all the time or every day for good portions of the day in order to be able to manage. They tend to be disoriented to time and place. They can't choose the proper clothing for the right season or the occasion. They're uh, you know, they're like these college students you see in February when the temperature gets 30 and they're all out in shorts and flip-flops. Uh, it's the same kind of thing, although it might be the opposite of that or whatever. Um, they still remember significant details about themselves and their family. And they still are independent with eating. I mean, they can't cook the meal, but you put the plate in front of them, they can feed themselves. And they're usually independent with toileting, though that's not always the case. Then stage six really blends, and it's an important stage, between late moderate and early severe, late or uh, early uh, uh, advanced Alzheimer's, late mid-stage. Patients at this point need, and let me, let me say this, I should have mentioned this earlier. I've never met anybody with Alzheimer's actually read these criteria and knows exactly what they're supposed to do and what they're not, and everybody has 
bits from a little bit from the stage above and a little bit from the stage below. It's, and that's the problem when you stage things. The disease doesn't follow these sort of decisions that are made by a committee. It's, the, the disease lives on its own, uh, by its own plan. And so you're, these are approximations of what goes on. These are the things that go on in most, but not all people. And always look above and look below to see other things that you're likely to find in those, in those individuals. So at any rate, in, in moderately severe, late-stage moderate disease, I guess would, we would say, the individual needs extensive help with daily activities. They really have no awareness of their recent experiences as well as their surroundings. They don't know where they are usually. They may have trouble recalling the name of their spouse or caregiver, very upsetting for spouses, uh, understandable. They need a lot of help with their dressing. They may need help handling the details of toileting. They can go in the bathroom, but the cleanup job is not done well, and the toilet paper ends up in very strange places. They're often frequently, uh, they're often frequently, they're frequently incontinent of bowel or bladder. And they tend to wander or become lost at this stage. Somebody who has really no memory and no awareness of where they are can go out the door, and wandering isn't some intentional effort to get away. Maybe it is sometimes. It's just a reflection of the fact that somebody who likes to walk, perhaps, and has no concept of space or distance or location, gets out and gets lost. Uh, it's really, it, that's really what it is. And it shouldn't be thought of as, as uh, the wandering itself is the problem. It's all the other stuff that's wrong with that that is the problem. And finally, in stage seven, which is the last stage, this is severe or late stage Alzheimer's. By this point, people have really lost their ability to react to the environment. They're not, they're not in the same world that you're in. They can't carry on a conversation. They may have a few words, according to the, you'll see in a moment, the Medicare criteria, they're supposed to be able to say six words in a day or fewer. Now usually those are, at least five of them are swear words. And the other one is in French. Um, but it's very variable, and again, nobody counts words when you're looking to decide whether or not somebody should be on uh, hospice care. They definitely need assistance with toileting, with eating. Late in stage seven, they lose the ability to smile, to sit up, to even hold their head up. They really become bedbound, and this is where swallowing begins to be impaired, if not before, usually not before. And rather than jumping to say, well, let's put in a feeding tube, this is a sign that I'm getting ready to die. This is just an abbreviated version of the FAST scale. And again, I have to emphasize that you know, th these things are nice, neat little one-line descriptions. It isn't always this simple or this clear. But as you can see, stage six isn't just stage six. It's 6A six through 6E. Can't tell you how many days or weeks people are in each one. But generally, if you look at the categories that are listed on the right, these this is usually the order in which functions are lost for stage six, stage seven. Going back once again to Mr. D. He was coming into this late stage six, stage six D or E, let's say, so perhaps 
urinary and fecal incontinence, moderately severe dementia, and heading, heading towards stage seven, certainly, at this point. By this time, his uh, DPOA had uh, made very clear that there was a desire for no life-prolonging interventions, uh, only what was absolutely necessary to provide comfort was what was desired. And this clearly reflected his prior wishes. This was not something independent that the DPOA thought of. He was still ambulating. He would still wander around the halls of his facility. But as is the case for people who are elderly in general, and particularly with late stage dementia, with a great deal of unsteadiness, and he fell. Brought to the emergency department, had a lot of pain when his leg, his right leg was moved, uh, or palpated, and other, his was not a person who complained a lot, but this was clearly he was in discomfort, although wouldn't be able to verbalize that, showed that, and Dr. Krasnoff will talk about how that's displayed in people with late stage dementia. He had an x-ray of his hip, and even I, as psychiatrist, can read that this is a fracture, intertrochanteric uh, fracture. One of the most common late-stage events in people with Alzheimer's. Ronald Reagan did this. He lived for quite a while afterwards, but it's a very, very common event. And no matter how much care you have, no matter how good the care is, it happens. So here was the situation, and this is a question I'd like to pose to people. <clears throat> what, what to do? He was in the emergency room for hours, as always. Um, surgeon finally came in, the orthopedist came in, very, very uh, thorough as assessment of the patient, and indicated to the family, the family said, well, what, or he indicated, I don't know what the order of this all was, but he needed an operation. He needed to have his hip fixed. The family said, well, what about doing nothing? And the orthopedist said, well, that, you know, that doesn't sound like a good idea. He's in pain. He's going to continue in pain. He'll never walk again if you don't fix that hip. As things are just going to get worse. If you do fix the hip and do a hemiarthroplasty, uh, there was a possibility of regaining some ambulation. I don't think that was too likely, but that's what was expressed or at least being able to sit up, but until that was done, at least by the orthopedist's opinion, there wasn't any chance that that was going to happen. So the family had a tough decision to make here. Do you operate or do you not operate? It was clear that they wanted this person not to have any interventions that were life-prolonging, that were uh, sort of heroic, but they certainly wanted him to be comfortable. And this was a man who enjoyed, if you remember, up till the day he fell, he liked walking around. He liked to walk around. So, so what would you do? Anybody want to venture an opinion to what to do? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would, the, would this individual be able to rehab uh, from his fractured hip uh, 
enough to be able to do the things the surgeon suggested could happen. And that's a high, of course, we don't know the answer to that, but I think it's highly questionable. Um, and uh, that, but that's a very important thing. Yes? So you're saying, just so I can repeat this so people hear, um, you're saying that your mother, in fact, had this scenario, had surgery, and within six weeks died from a pulmonary, presumed pulmonary embolus. Okay. Either way. Yes, over that far table. So, so here's another scenario. This is this person, again, same situation, had the surgery uh, and was up in 24 hours, just on Tylenol, and lived another three months, did you say? Yeah. So that's one reason. Yeah. That's right. That's the statistics. Um, well, this was, as you can see, just from the few comments that we've taken, and I think I'll go on now. Um, but certainly later on we can have more discussion about this. There are pros and cons in each direction. It's not a simple question. And this family wrestled with this. There are lots of phone calls going back and forth to various people. And in the end, the decision was made to, for the by this family to have, to have the operation. The DPOA was reluctant about signing the papers for this and indicated to the surgeon that, Donaldson, no heroics. If the, he dies on the table, he dies on the table. Um, surgery was being done to provide comfort and for what I would say is a remote possibility that he might walk again. At least maybe be up in a wheelchair and be able to cruise around. So he was transferred to the VA for surgery. The operation went well. Uh, although post-operative, uh, you know, that's sort of like the old joke. Uh, the operation went well, although post-operatively, Mr. D was found to be quite anemic and hypotensive. So the resident was called late at night and made the decision to speed up his IV and give him a unit of blood. Was that the right thing to do? Anybody have an opinion about that? So that, that was done, and the explanation was, well, this was all sort of part of the operative procedure. We wanted to make, you know, get him out of the recovery room. But I think that's, that's a decision that could also be discussed uh, later on, perhaps. He never, Mr. Dean never regained any degree of alertness uh, following surgery. 
even though he was not getting a lot of opiates, in fact, he did for a few days, and then he got uh, just, I think, Tylenol. Um, the decision was made by the Durham Power Attorney to discontinue his IV, um, to provide no antibiotics should those be needed, and to transfer him back from the VA to the assisted living facility on hospice. So let me say a little bit about hospice, the Medicare hospice benefit. This is the best deal going in Medicare, I think. And uh, although it's used much more now than in the recent past for patients with dementia, it's still grossly underutilized, I think. In 2009, 11% of patients dying on hospice had a diagnosis of dementia. Looked at the other way, in 2004, that's the most recent data I could find, Fewer than 10% of people dying with dementia were on hospice, compared to 40% of all persons dying on hospice. So hospice is underutilized, particularly in the case of dementia. You may have uh, later statistics on this, and I'd be curious to know, but whatever the exact numbers are, it's not utilized enough. Why? Well, it's uh, people. Uh, are still slow to involve hospice, I think, in anything that isn't cancer, but all of that is changing. In this condition, most people have the mindset that you have to, you have to be able to die, you have to know you're going to die in six months in order to be eligible for hospice. How do you know that in Alzheimer's disease? There's a real lack of awareness among physicians about the criteria for enrolling dementia patients on hospice. And there's often a lack of acceptance on the family's part that this is a terminal hospice appropriate illness. In order to meet criteria for hospice if you have Alzheimer's, you're supposed to be in fast stage seven, which I talked about before. I've seen some flexibility with that in parent, depending on the hospice. I've seen patients with late stage six go into hospice. Technically, that's not appropriate, but it may have to do with other comorbidities. The hospice criteria say stage seven or the presence of comorbid disease distinct from the terminal illness that will impact functional impairment and the combined effect of which would suggest that you're likely to die within six months. For example, COPD, CHF, and so forth. You can have had, you have to have had one of the following, uh, one of these criteria, one of these illnesses, I'm sorry, in the last six months, delirium, recurrent infections, you can read the list. These are certainly common in the, late, in the lives of late stage Alzheimer's patients, to be sure. Um, <clears throat> One of the other decisions that comes up, and I alluded to it earlier, in late stage dementia patients who lose their ability to swallow, and, and Mr. D was able to take in minimal fluids and, and uh, jello and pudding and stuff like that, not very much. But one of the decisions, he certainly didn't have a feeding tube placed, one of the decisions that has to be made is about feeding tubes. And if you look at the literature, and this is from 2010 in JAMA, one third of nursing home residents with advanced dementia have a feeding tube inserted. Now, I was surprised to see it was that high. Of course, none of us did that. But uh, it's, that's the statistic. And there's no evidence 
There's no evidence that feeding tubes improve survival, prevent aspiration pneumonia, people aspirate around the feeding tube, or improve other clinical outcomes. But it kind of makes families feel better sometimes, or physicians especially feel better. We're doing something. There's nothing to do in this late stage, but let's do something. Let's put it in two. When in doubt, put it in two. So, Mr. D's final days, as I said, he really didn't ever recover from surgery. He never got out of bed. He, he could prop him up on the edge of the bed, but that, was, that took a lot of propping and it was nothing that he was able to do voluntarily. As I said, he was spoon-fed, not force-fed, and that was clear that the, the, the uh, Dura Power attorney said, if he wants to take something, by all means he should, but don't force it on him. He did get repositioned to avoid bed sores and so forth, and he showed some mild discomfort when that was going on, but otherwise he didn't appear in distress. He was just out of it. He would occasionally open his, open his eyes that were not focused uh, on anybody or anything. There was no sense of interaction there. And uh, after about two weeks, maybe three weeks of this, he passed. This is the autopsy, or a clip from the autopsy. Again, it was just a brain-only autopsy, so we don't know everything that was going on. Alzheimer's disease, and he happened to have Parkinson's disease as well, which he had some clinical signs of, but it was not recognized as a primary uh, uh, diagnosis during life. But the autopsy of the brain revealed this. So, let me, let me shift gears now, and I want to talk a little bit about what the caregiver goes through with all of this, and what the, the caregiver goes through in the way of grief in dealing with someone with Alzheimer's, because in many ways it's similar to other illnesses, but in many ways it's different. <clears throat> One of the things that is almost unique to dementia, maybe not entirely, there are some other conditions, but that is certainly characteristic of this illness is a condition referred to as ambiguous loss. It's a very important concept, I think, to think about. This is the feeling that comes from interacting with a person who has Alzheimer's, who's physically alive, but no longer present socially or psychologically. The person with Alzheimer's is there but not there. This is what's called ambiguous laws. They're there, but they're not really there. Certainly that was the case for a good long time prior to Mr. D's death, and as it is for many, many people with Alzheimer's and other dimensions. Another concept which is not unique to Alzheimer's disease or dementia, but is common in this condition, is what is called anticipatory grief. You know that something bad is coming and you start grieving for it before it happens. Well, in many cases in Alzheimer's, it already has happened. This loss, this ambiguous loss that has occurred has, has already taken place. But this is a paper that uh, appeared last year in Alzheimer's disorders and Alzheimer's disease and associated disorders looking at anticipatory grief in new family caregivers of persons with mild cognitive impairment and dementia. 
And the reason I wanted to show this is to explain that this is not something that happens just in the very late stages of dementia when you know the person's in stage six, stage seven, but begins early on. These are individuals who were uh, noted in many cases to have mild cognitive impairment and the caregivers already were going through a period of anticipatory grief, missing the person who used to be there. So it's not as in, uh, as I maybe indicated earlier, that they're either there or they're not there, but they're there and then gradually they're not there. There are pieces of them that aren't there from really very early on. And the grief experience, the anticipatory grief, begins very early on, even in mild cognitive impairment. Now it's more severe, the further along someone is in Alzheimer's disease, Caregivers have more difficulty functioning when they're in grief. Is that surprising? Of course not. But it is not something we're going to be able to do anything about if we don't think about the fact that even though Mr. Smith is, you know, he's functioning okay, his his wife is is grieving because he's he's he seems okay to me. I'm the doctor who's used to dealing with very sick patients, but according to to Mrs. Smith, he's not the same guy he was for the first 45 years of their marriage. And it's interesting that the degree of anticipatory grief, according to this study, and it's not surprising to me, was not related to demographic factors or marital quality. In other words, you'd think that, geez, the more you love somebody, the more grief you're going to be when they start to go. Not necessarily so, and I certainly have seen that in my own practice, that some of the most difficult experiences caregivers have with losing a loved one to Alzheimer's are caregivers who are, have a very conflicted relationships with their, their loved one. Um, that they, they have a very, very complicated attachment. And they can have some of the most difficult grieving experiences of all. This is another review article from Geriatric, International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, Grief Reactions in Dementia Carers, a Systematic Review. This looked at 31 studies in the literature looking at uh, grief reactions in caregivers of Alzheimer's patients. And they described that these individuals uh, experienced multiple losses, both for themselves and for the person with disease, it's loss of companionship, the loss of personal freedom, and one certainly hears this from caregivers, they no longer can you know, just run out for a few hours and go shopping or go whatever. They've got to be back there. Somebody's got to be there with the loved one. So they really have a real sense of losing their sense of freedom and their sense of control. Anticipatory grief is greatest in moderate to severe stages, and greatest once the individual is institutionalized, which is also of interest. It's not like, oh, everything's terrible until you put them in the nursing home and then everything's fine, not at all. Some 47% to 71% experience anticipatory grief. The way I would read that is they were able to get 41 to 70, 47 to 71% to agree that they had it, and the rest of them were too ashamed to admit it. Or hated the person they were caring for so much that they were very happy to see them fading away. 
Here's another study that comes back from a few years ago, the New England Journal of Medicine. End-of-life care and the effects of bereavement on family caregivers of persons with dementia. Here they looked at 217 caregivers, and they followed them during the year prior to death. They also then evaluated the caregivers after the death of their loved one, and that's really what this is about. What they found was that over 90% of the caregivers believed somewhat or very much that death came as a relief to the patient. Nearly three quarters of caregivers were able to acknowledge that the death was somewhat or very much a relief to themselves. Sixty-nine percent said they were prepared for the death. Sixty-three percent, and this is concerning, and I would ask Margot to comment on this later, sixty-three percent of caregivers reported that near the time of death, the patient had been in pain often or all the time. Sixty-three percent, nearly two-thirds. Why aren't we doing a better job of keeping people comfortable in the late stages of their life? I'm glad I don't have to answer that. I'm going to give that to Marco. <clears throat> they also found that 21% of these bereaved caregivers were using bereavement services after death. Another 14% felt they needed them, but somehow didn't get connected up. Caregivers reported high levels of depressive symptoms while providing care to their loved one and at the time of death. No surprise there. Within three months after the death, however, depression tended to decrease significantly. So mood, it, after three months, mood certainly improved. Not immediately, but it, after a number of months. At one year, depression levels were significantly lower than when these individuals were acting as caregivers. So the majority of caregivers, thankfully, are able to recover from this loss. It may take a year to where they are no longer feeling the grief and the, the distress that they were feeling while the loved one was living. But it doesn't happen overnight, as we should not be surprised to know. So let me conclude, and I, I guess I could, uh, I'm leaving, I'm finishing early, so we'll have lots of time for questions. All dementia care is palliative care, as I've said. A key feature of palliative care for dementia is the role of the durable power of attorney, or the role of substituted judgment. Who is making the decisions for this person, and when do those decisions get made? Another question to ask, and again, hopefully Dr. Krasnoff and others will address this, is how do we assess comfort and quality of life in advanced dementia? There's certainly been a lot of articles about this in psychiatric literature about quality of life in advanced dementia. And it's not that you can give, you can't give a person with advanced dementia a quality of life scale and rate that. These are judgments we have to make about people. You can, you can do it early on, I don't know how reliable it is, but you, these are judgments that need to be made. Why? Because that's what our goal is, is to provide quality of life. If it's there, you know, great, in a, in a bad situation. If it's not there, what are we doing to 
that what could we be doing differently? Um, the caregiver requires merits significant attention throughout the process. From the stages of mild cognitive impairment through the end of life, and that's a decade or more for many cases, caregivers are struggling with this. And I like to say to people in uh, thinking about taking care of dementia, you're not ever taking care of a single patient. You're taking care of the patient and their primary caregiver, their loved one, their spouse, if they have a living spouse, their adult children, if they have those. Whoever is in the network for that individual, and there's always somebody, hopefully. And at what point in the illness should medical efforts to prolong life change to comfort goals uh, only? You know, if I have a heart attack right now as I'm speaking here, don't, I'm, I don't plan to do that, I'm hoping or not. But if I did, I would want to be resuscitated. I, want, I have things to do, I want to keep doing them. And uh, hopefully my don't power of attorney would agree with that. Um, but, you know, at some point, if I develop dementia and I have a heart attack, I'm going to hope that somebody doesn't resuscitate me. But at what point does that happen? I don't know the answer to that. There isn't any answer, single answer to that. But those are questions that we need to ask and we need to consider. So let me uh, stop now, and I'm happy to take comments and questions. If, is this what we're supposed to do now? Oh, with the microphone, right. Yeah. Um, why is it that with the uh, late stage of dementia that it's common that people have difficulty with swallowing? People, uh, as the, with the neurological breakdown that occurs in Alzheimer's disease, uh, it, it may be a slightly different story in other dimensions, but let's just stick with Alzheimer's disease. The uh, nerves that control the proper closure of the glottis become interfered with, become lost. And that reflex, which is, you know, we all have, uh, and only occasionally gets overridden, that reflex gets lost. Um, it's it's important to real, and there are you know, things to do along that along the way. If people are beginning to have a little difficulty with swallowing, you want to make sure that they're sitting up, right? And, and you know more than I do about what's the right thing to do with people who are having swallowing problems. Um, but at some point, it needs to be recognized in a late stage in a person with late stage dementia that that is the signal that they're winding down, that that is the signal, not that we have to do something, but maybe we've got to just, what we have to do is make sure that we're providing comfort because that's an end, that's an end of life phenomenon that's occurring. Oh, here we go. Wait, what's it? You thought there was any uh, explanation or care ramification for mild um, Alzheimer's when it seems there's a change during the day. Like they're better at some times than others. Um, and we always call it sundowning in the hospital. But and that's the most typical. That's certainly the most typical pattern that's shown that people at Al with Alzheimer's are at their best early in the day. Uh, maybe not the first moment of the day, but. Uh, 
in the morning hours, and by mid-afternoon and beyond are having less good times. And should care change at that point? Well, certainly any activities that need to happen, anything that requires cognitive involvement, cognitive work should happen early in the day. Things need for people who do show this pattern, not everybody does, but it's extraordinarily common. Things need to slow down late in the day. Activities need to be non-stimulating rather than overly stimulating. Medications may need to be used in midday, uh, mid-afternoon to later in the afternoon. So yes, definitely it's appropriate to consider that diurnal pattern when uh, providing treatment and care for individuals. If you're going to have visitors come, the best thing is to say, come early in the day. Come at lunchtime or before. Don't come at 5 o'clock at night. If, on the other hand, you know, you have adult children who don't come very often, they say, he's not so bad. Invite them to come at 5 o'clock at night. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's a good thing to do. As, as a DPOA, how would you best suggest um, dealing with a, a conflict with the facility around um, living will issues or advanced directive issues. Can you be more specific about what that conflict is? Um, okay, the, the patient has um, advanced dementia and is not very functional and develops pneumonia. Um, the DPOA has already made it clear that medication, life-sustaining medication only, or for comfort, I mean, not life-sustaining, but only for comfort. No antibiotics, in other words. No antibiotics, but the facility insists that um, the patient is not on hospice and needs the antibiotics, and that that is for comfort, um, and gives the DPOA difficult a difficult time. How, how does the DPOA deal with that? That's, that's an interesting question. It shouldn't, shouldn't come up. What the, at that point, if, that's the, if the DPOA has been enacted, and that is the DPOA's judgment, the facility really does not have the right to override that, it seems to me. Now, that can get more complicated. Let's say a DPOA, you have a person in, in an institution and uh, they're very aggressive towards other residents or staff. And the DPOA says, well, I don't want you using any sedating medications because that's what I don't want for my dad. But the facility really can't feel comfortable keeping the person there without medication. That's a different matter. They may have to make a decision not to keep the patient in the facility. But when it comes to something like antibiotics, if the DPOA says no antibiotics, that's, the, that's as if the patient, him or herself, were saying that, and you can't technically violate that. You may need a lawyer. Yeah. Nope, nope, nope. Not until you get the microphone. <laughs> I work in long-term care, and the best thing for that kind of a situation that we use is we have comfort care measures mm -hmm. that are the, exactly what the DPOA or the family has decided, which includes no antibiotics, no diet restrictions, no weights, any of that type of thing that you want to end and just make them comfort. 
So I think that would take care of the problem if there's some kind of conflict and they're in a long-term care facility. That, well, that makes very good sense. And I think it also emphasizes the point that, and I imagine that this will be talked about later, is that, you know, it's not that we do everything, do everything, do everything, boom, patient goes on hospice, do nothing. That this, this whole process of palliative care is a process, it's an ongoing process that involves decision making, as I said, from the time the patient is in the mild stages of dementia. Um, so it's not just, well, they're not on hospice, so we do everything. That's, that's an, an incorrect interpretation of, of what should be happening, it seems to me. What about the caregiver guilt, which is certainly part of anticipatory grief, but a very difficult part, as I experienced myself and my own mother. What about caregiver guilt? You're absolutely right. It's a very, very big issue. And I believe that a lot of the, I think, I won't say I believe, that's too strong. I think that a lot of the decisions to do more than is appropriate for late stage patients are made because caregivers feel too guilty to, to act in other ways. And in, in the end, put, put people through unnecessary suffering as a result. Caregiver guilt is the single greatest issue that caregivers, I think, have to deal with. What I'd, what I'd like to say is, I have a book coming out that uh, has a chapter on that, and I would suggest you read that. But it's, what would you say? Okay. Um, but it's a, it, it, is a, it is a very, very important issue and there isn't a simple solution. And one of the things I was alluding to before is that uh, caregiver guilt, uh, it's ubiquitous, uh, and I don't mean to suggest this at all in, in this case, but one of the things that is striking is that sometimes the caregiver guilt is the worst when relationships have been very conflicted in the first place. People have been fighting for 50 years. You'd think, oh my gosh, now we can get rid of not so. The guilt sometimes is enormous and very difficult in those cases. This is a difficult uh, way to ask the question. Uh, you know, from the perspective of nursing homes, uh, and maybe sometimes from people's homes, uh, people with Alzheimer's or advanced, fairly significant illnesses are sent to the emergency room because folks either don't know what to do or nursing homes don't want the responsibility to continue to care of a patient who may have fallen, broken head, it's obvious, but they're off to the emergency room, and then the emergency rooms get them, and then you know, they make a diagnosis, and in the middle of, even though advanced directors say, do not do this, do not do that, they always seem to, not always, it would appear that they come to the emergency room often, and then the ER physicians and the staff and the paramedics are always, do everything fast, quick, efficiently, and move on to the next person. And that puts, I think, these poor patients in a difficult position, not to mention the hospital staff emergency room either are sympathetic, empathetic, or frustrated. Any thoughts? Uh, I agree with you that I think it happens all too often, um, that the knee-jerk reaction, maybe that's, it isn't always a knee-jerk, it's a thought-out reaction, but the reaction tends to be We've got to send this patient off. We've got to have something done. And the people, whether in a facility or at home or wherever, are very, very uncomfortable with doing nothing. 
with simply providing comfort and letting things be. Uh, in a facility, there may be legal issues that they're worried about, rightly or wrongly, as well. I'm going to ask, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to bet that Dr. Krasnoff will have something to say about this as a medical director for a local nursing home, um, about how that situation should be handled um, and, and what things we can do to ensure that those patients where the, it's been clearly written in the record by, uh, you know, the ordering physician, that the patient is not to be transferred to the hospital under any circumstances unless it's purely to provide comfort, um, how those things can be, be fully carried out. Uh, it's, it's not an easy solution. But I think, you know, to, to oversimplify it, I've been emphasizing that dementia, especially late-stage dementia, is a fatal illness. People die of that. But it still is felt that, well, not today. Not today. Let's, let's get them over there. We'll have them back and let them just die nicely in their sleep rather than as a result of crisis. It's not how it happens. It may happen because they're not able to eat. It may, they are starving to death. It may happen from the fall. But it's, uh, it, it, people die with this, they die of this, and that's something we have to accept, and that people in home and in facilities even perhaps have a hard time accepting that. I'll be anxious to hear what Mark has to say about that. Here's, here's another question up front here. Actually, it's not a question. It's um, comment from someone who's been there. My husband has late-stage Alzheimer's. He's home. And you get into an awful situation if you transport to the hospital. Um, you may transport to the hospital because you don't know what's going on. Once you're there, you're under enormous pressure to do something. And even from someone who was resolute about not doing anything. Once you're there, you're pulled into this sort of whirlwind of activity. And the best thing emergency room personnel could do would be to support the poor caregiver, one who's been there in this very difficult decision. It's bad enough to do it in the first place, to make the decision, but when you're doing it against, basically against medical advice, it's a tough role. And, and I've been there twice. So it's, you know, I guess the best advice, and I'm a healthcare professional. You're a nurse, yeah, you might add that. That's an important fact. The you best know what, yeah. advice is, you know, yes, the DPOA has to make the decision, but a little leading would be helpful rather than saying, we gotta get a line in it, we gotta do this, we gotta do that. No, 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 no. Know is how to keep him comfortable, but then the line's in, then you're getting antibiotics, then you've got time to think, but you close that window of opportunity and this misery. It's a very, very good point, and to, to sort of try to row against the tide there is, is what you're talking about. Once you get in that emergency room, emergency rooms save lives. That's their job. Well, maybe maybe it needs to be thought of more broadly than that. But you know, Are there some back here. Yes, thanks. I had a comment regarding the case you presented, and another consideration came to my mind 
when elective surgery is being considered. And generally, um, DNR orders are rescinded during surgery. So, a, you know, some untoward event could occur where a patient comes out of a simple hip fracture replacement with an intraaortic balloon pump or something very aggressive and, and with high level of postoperative care needs, et cetera. So I think that's just another slant on a, a consideration. Be careful what you're getting into. Exactly. Yeah, very good point, very good point. <clears throat> Any other comments? Let's see how much time we have. Time for another question? Way in the back here. Hold on for the mic. Um, I have two questions, actually. One of them is um, I work with people in the community primarily. And what I find is people who are trying to care for somebody at home and putting up a valiant effort. Um, there's very, you can't get them skilled care enough to even get um, a home health aid to help with bathing, where sometimes people actually deal better with a caregiver, not a family member, giving them personal care. Not and only, not only for me, not only do they deal better, but psychologically it's maybe a whole lot better for the family member not to be doing that. Exactly. Go ahead, excuse me. And at least in, um, I'm more familiar this week with the Vermont laws, but, um, you know, trying to get them onto a moderate needs program or the more intensive choices for care program it's very difficult if they can still do things like get dressed. They, they meet the functional needs, but they still require support and supervision. And so sometimes I, I've told people, um, when they're evaluating your family member, um, try not to be in the room. Or be in the room and try not to, um, you know, try not to cue them so that they actually will show their functional level. Or so tell, them to, tell them to come and evaluate him at 4 o'clock. The funny's at his best. Yeah, and I, and I mean, the other thing is, I think for the DPOA, et cetera, and for a number of family members to have very open conversations about, as this progresses downhill, what do we think that we collectively can put together for a support system so that you know, uh, significant others, other than the primary person, uh, can be clear about whether or not they can get in the game or not. Because I find that people count on other people being able to do it, and they can't, or they aren't inclined to. Versus if they've had a little bit of knowledge and been thinking about it, and have been integrated a little bit more slowly, maybe that would have helped. Um, my second point is I, I have... Uh, can, well, can we talk about the first one first? Because sure. I'll forget it if you don't. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I want to uh, you know, agree with everything you said and the irony and the frustration of this is uh, it's just immense. You know, I've seen more than a few people who basically go into a nursing home because they, that's the only way they can get care for the person, the, the, adequate, the amount of care that they need. 
if they can't get them onto some state program that will allow them to be cared for at home. So they're still being paid for by the state, maybe on Medicaid or whatever. So this, you know, they're, they're costing the government, state government in this case, far more money to be cared for daily in a nursing home than would be the case if they were cared for at home. Forget about the money, it's that that's what most people want, is to stay at home, and most families want for their loved one to stay at home. But I've certainly seen more than one patient where family has sort of give up and say, we can't put it together, we can't afford it, the only way we can do this is to have them go into a nursing home. What a, what a stupid situation that is. I'm sure that once we, you're able to sign on to the right website for Obamacare, all of that will be fixed, right? But uh, uh, it's, this is a big frustration. We need, the answer is we obviously need, you know, the vast majority of people with Alzheimer's die in nursing homes. They shouldn't be dying in nursing homes. They shouldn't be going into nursing homes at the end of their life, except when that's really what makes the most sense. But uh, the ability to keep people at home is uh, very, very difficult with so little support out in the community. And it's very expensive. Yeah. I mean, if you're hiring it privately, it's very expensive. It's very expensive, yes. And, but uh, if the state is doing it, it may still be cheaper than the nursing home. My other comment is, uh, I've seen this with other hospice patients lately, not with this diagnosis, but when people make the conscious decision to turn their defibrillators and their pacemakers off. And um, that, uh, that can bring up some conflicts with people. I find that that, that happens better when the person, uh, in my limited experience, when the person is still competent and those discussions you know, having, having been had, you know, before that, because that feels like it's invasive, but... Um, Turning them off? Yeah, I mean, I think that the DPOAs or the family members think that that's invasive. However, the, the hospice patient themselves feels like, okay, so if I'm at a point where I, where I do arrest, or I do slip into something, then this defibrillator or uh, pacemaker is just going to prolong this unless it's shut off. Do you do you encounter that much with people with dementia? Well, I, I'm not sure how much the how often I've seen that particular scenario with pacemakers and defibrillators and, and with patients with dementia. Um, I, I would say in general it's a whole lot easier to put something into somebody uh, for the medical community than take it out. The same is true for feeding tubes. You know, once it's in, it's a very hard decision, emotionally, I mean, for people to say, okay, we're not going to do that any longer. We're going to take it out. It's a very, very, very tough decision for people to go along with. It feels like you're pulling the plug on somebody rather than, you know, letting God decide or letting nature decide, depending on your belief system. Maybe we should stop at this point. <laughs>